Good morning. As I said before, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 31. You can follow along on the screen. You can also grab one of those blue Bibles around you. It's going to be on page 486. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, please take that Bible. Uh, that is a gift to you. We want you to have a Bible that you can read uh, at home. So, one of my friends from, uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, when I lived there uh, for five years, he was a church planner and uh, was a pastor. And over the last few years, uh, I've kind of watched, really online, he has, a, he has kind of developed a following as he's uh, stopped being a pastor. He's kind of moved into more of being a motivational speaker. He's done a TED Talk. And, uh, and it's been kind of sad. I've watched him kind of depart from kind of the core teachings of our faith and, and really, really departing from the gospel. And about a month ago, uh, he posted uh, this graphic right there. If divine forgiveness requires payment, then it's not really forgiveness, but restitution. And I saw that. And I was, I was blown away. <laughs> I just was like, oh, okay. Uh, now, my personal policy, uh, when somebody posts something on Facebook that's meant to be a discussion starter, uh, that's meant to, to really uh, be a little bit controversial, is don't, don't comment. Just don't do it. Facebook is not a place for discussion. It's an angry place now. <laughs> it's, there's no nuance. Like, it, it's just not, you know... It's not worth debate. Now, I should say that that's probably the policy that all of you should have, is when somebody posts something on Facebook, don't comment, right? It's, it, you're not going to have a discussion. Uh, you're not going to convince anybody of your position. It's just going to devolve into a lot of angry ranting. Uh, it's just not the most helpful place uh, to, to have discussions. It's much better to do it in person. So, having said that, I commented on that post. <laughs> uh, I reasoned in my head, I was like, you know what, we don't have a lot of friends that overlap on Facebook, and I don't know, like, I, it's kind of out on the internet somewhere, I was like, I just, I just, I, I just want to, I just want to respond, so I did, and we had, I mean, we're friends, so, you know, we, we had a civil discussion, uh, the, the big following that he has amassed, uh, they were not, they were not happy with my take uh, on this uh, statement, so, I looked at that and I was like, that's insane. What it's saying is, is that if divine forgiveness, if God's forgiveness requires payment, then it's not really forgiveness, but restitution. Restitution being a payment for something that is wrong. And a lot of people looked at that like, oh, that's really deep. That's profound. And I thought, only, only in a Western culture like ours could you divorce forgiveness from restitution. As if they were two completely different ideas and not two sides of the same coin. As only in our culture that is largely insulated from major injustices. Now, we have injustices. We absolutely do. But in other cultures across the world where they face genocide, where there are people that are going into villages and, and hurting women and, and, and stealing children that are going through major injustices, they would look at that and think that how in the world could you divorce forgiveness from payment as if they're two completely different options so I, I tried to have this discussion and I thought more about it uh, in, over the last month and the reality is it's not based in the Bible and, and one of, the, one of the, the, the people that really like this idea uh, they don't like the idea of God's 
wrath. They don't like the idea of sin. They, they don't like those ideas at all. So it's not based in the Bible. It's also not, it's also not based in reality. I mean, for example, if I, if I devised a scheme to steal your mother or your grandmother's retirement, everything she's worked for her entire life, I stole every penny, and then I got caught. There's one of two options of how that really plays out. It's either I pay restitution. I, I pay for the wrong that was done. Or she says, no, I, you know what? He obviously needs the money. I forgive him. But even in both of those examples, somebody is paying restitution. Either I'm doing it or she's absorbing the debt herself. In her forgiveness, she's the one that's actually making the payment. There is no biblical reality. There is no reality in general that separates the idea of forgiveness from payment. And that is because forgiveness is not free. It costs something. Tim Keller, a pastor that we, that we love and look up to, says the only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it himself. To, to make the payment himself. And today that's what we're going to look at. Today we're going to walk through that reality as we see it very clearly. We've been following Jesus as he's preparing for the cross. And now uh, he is leading up to the cross. And we're going to follow him all the way up to before he walks up the hill. And as we walk through this today, we're going to see over and over again that forgiveness is not free. That it has a cost that Jesus paid. And my hope is, is for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, my hope is that that would lead us uh, to, to a deeper affection and love for Christ. And my hope for those of you that have not trusted in Jesus as your only hope, for those of you that do not know him, my hope is that you would see how much our God loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. So that's, that's the goal. That's what we're going to be walking through this morning. Let me pray for us as we walk through this passage. Lord, we love you, and we are thankful for what you have done for us. God, I pray that you would help us see that so clearly. It would become so beautiful to us, and that you would work on our hearts and we would respond. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, verse 11 Chapter 27, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. All right, so context from last week. Uh, Chet walked us through all the way up to the trial at the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. That's the uh, religious leadership, and they put him on trial. And they're looking for a charge that they can, uh, that they can uh, charge him with under their law, under the Old Testament law. And the charge they come up with is blasphemy, which is ironic because Jesus is God. And they charge him of this, but that's not enough to have him killed. Right? That they need the Romans to carry this out legally, and the Romans don't care about Jewish law. So they're going to find a different charge to bring him to uh, Pilate with, they're going to work on the charge of kingship and the claim to be king that he's an insurrectionist, that he's trying to lead a rebellion. That's what they're going to bring to Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the governor over this region. He's the prefect of the region of Judea. He is a politician. 
He's a politician assigned with the, with the assignment of ruling and, uh, Judea over the Jews and, and the Roman Empire. That's not a glorious post. Like, you don't, no one volunteers and gets excited about that post. It's not Greece, right? He could have been in different parts of Greece with deep into the Greco-Roman uh, culture. He could have been in places like Alexandria, Egypt. Lots of places he could have gone to been assigned to that would have been good but he has been given the task of being governor over the region of Judea and it is not a fun place to rule as a Roman governor because the Jews hate the Romans they don't like the Romans and the and the feeling is mutual the the Romans look down on the Jewish people see one of the brilliant parts of of Roman rule is that when they conquered you you liked it 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 was nice once once they conquered you they brought their culture, and a lot of other places assimilated to, they, they, they grew into being, you know, Roman. This, this Greco-Roman, they call it Hellenistic culture. They liked it. They liked what it had to offer. They, they did, you know, the taxes were high, but they had roads and infrastructure and all kinds of things, and they were kind of fine with being ruled. The Jews were not. They rebelled over and over again. They, 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 have a, they had a different uh, faith, a different religion that the Romans looked down upon. Those, they didn't have a lot of shared values when it came to that. And, and so there's, there's that kind of history between the Romans and uh, the Jewish people. But there's also personal history between Pontius Pilate and the Jewish people. You see, when he first came uh, to rule in Judea, the, one of the first things he did was he took the Roman shields, which bore a graven image, and he set them up all around Jerusalem. And that's a violation of the second command, uh, having a graven image in the holy city. So they... The, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, they, they protested this. And they led a major protest against uh, Pontius Pilate, against the Romans. And you can look at two different historical res- uh, sources. You can look at uh, a story named Philo, another named uh, Josephus. When you piece them together, it looks like this was a major protest that King Herod uh, had to get involved. And it made, C- it made uh, uh, Pontius Pilate look bad before Caesar. He got a slap on the wrist. So there's that kind of tension. Also, at one point, Pontius Pilate went into the temple, took some of the, the money from the temple, and built some water systems in the city. So the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate have some cultural history and differences and some personal beef with one another. Now, you might be wondering, that's great. You love history. Why does that matter here? First off, history is nice. It gives you some context. Uh, But secondly, it's important to understand what's happening right here. Because these two have to work together. The religious leaders and Pilate have to work together. See, Pilate needs the religious leadership because they they help keep the people in check. They make sure they don't rebel. And as we've seen with the religious leadership, they love power. They're in bed with the Romans, and they like the power that comes with that. So they have to work together. All of that history comes into this moment All of that division between these two political rivals comes into this moment where they bring Jesus to get authority so that he can be executed. So Pilate asks, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus does not hesitate. He says, you have said so. Yes, he confirms he is the king of the Jews. You might be thinking, all right, isn't that the charge that does it? It's not. The reason why is because Pilate does not really care over who the self-proclaimed king of the Jews is. He didn't care about that. that that's not something that's, that's really important. There is a king, Herod. He's got a weird spot, spot in the Roman Empire. And he doesn't even like Herod at this point. So it, it, 
That's not enough to actually get him crucified. He doesn't uh, care about the customs. He doesn't care about the law the Jewish people have. But what the religious leadership is trying to do is they're trying to mount a case. They're trying to help him see that the Messiah from the Old Testament, the king who Jesus is claimed to be, is going to have a global reign. He is going to have a global reign, and that is going to put him at odds with Caesar. We see that in John's gospel when they say, he, you are no friend to Caesar if you don't deal with this. So they're going to try to make a political maneuver against him to force his hand. And in the midst of this, Jesus confirms his kingship to Pontius Pilate, but then he doesn't defend himself. Verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so the governor was greatly amazed. So at this point, the religious leadership starts mounting their case against Jesus, and Jesus is silent. He doesn't say a word. And this stuns Pilate. He's like, can you hear what they're saying? Can you hear what, what, what they're, the things, they're, the, the accusations they're levying against you? He doesn't say a word. And this is shocking to Pilate. But this is to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He does not defend himself. They keep making this case against him. He is silent. Like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter. Because Jesus knows. He knows what the Father wants. He knows what needs to happen. Our sin needs to be paid for. And forgiveness is not free. He will not defend himself. This is a part of the plan. If he wanted to at this moment. Remember what Chet said last week. He, He said he could appeal to a legion of angels in this moment. At this moment, angels could come down by his command and they would absolutely destroy his enemies. But he remains silent because forgiveness is not free. Verse 15 says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. All right, so now around this time, Pilate had instituted really a political gesture that around the Passover feast time, they would release to them one of, uh, the, one of the prisoners that they had. And it was kind of genius. Because the, the fear was, around Passover, is that this is the perfect time for rebellion to happen. It's when everyone's coming in to the city from all over the region, and they're celebrating the Passover feast, which, remember, is the festival that, remind, that, that they help celebrate to remember that, G, that, the, that God helped free them from an oppressive regime and the Egyptians. What better time to start a rebellion against an oppressive regime at the yearly festival where they remember this? So this is a political gesture. Give them one of the prisoners, an act of goodwill. And, and, and see, all of this is a political exchange. And at this time, there is a prisoner named Barabbas. Now Mark's gospel tells us a little bit about who Barabbas is. He is an insurrectionist, meaning that he is someone who has led a rebellion, and he is a murderer. He has killed at least one person. He is completely guilty. And the ones who were put on crosses were rebels, were insurrectionists. 
You can look at Jewish history at the time when these rebellions would happen. The Romans would quickly put them down and very forcefully. They would line the roads out of the city with crosses. And they would put rebels. It, it, was, a, it was a brutal, brutal form of torture and death for those who would rebel. So it is fair to say that this day, Barabbas was set to be crucified. That Barabbas woke up that morning ready to face death. Uh, there's a, something called the death row phenomenon. It's the psychological building up that happens with prisoners on death row. With, with, and, it's, and it's pretty intense. I was listening to a, a pastor. He, was, he had interviewed a, a chaplain who was a chaplain on death row. And he said that some of these prisoners would build themselves up uh, if, if they were going to face the gas chamber, for example, that they would, uh, they would uh, days leading up, would have like, moments of just really heavy breathing and intense breathing and, and really simulating what it's like to be in the gas chamber, gasping for breath, that those who had been hung bef- uh, for, uh, that they would have this preparation where they almost could feel uh, the rope around their neck in the days leading up to execution, that there's this, there's this weight to being executed. And Barabbas wakes up this morning and, and is feeling and sensing, maybe even possibly sensing what it's like to be on the cross. You have to lift up your chest as you're slowly uh, gasping for breath, as you're slowly suffocating. He is in the cell awaiting a grim fate. But then something happens, verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Barabbas is waiting in a cell, and there's commotion happening out in uh, the courtyard. There's political maneuvering that is happening out there. You see, Pilate offers up two different people, and he could have chosen anyone else besides Jesus. He could have chosen a less notorious criminal. It's his choosing, but he chooses the notorious Barabbas. You see the, the politics at play here? He presents both of them because he understands the motives of the religious leaders. He understands they're envious, they're jealous. And if he can put Jesus alongside Barabbas, then it makes it a tough choice for the crowds. All right? The notorious prisoner or the Jesus who he knows about. This is the first time that Pontius has heard of Jesus. Jesus, for three years, he's been a celebrity in the land. This traveling sage, this prophet, who thousands of people have traveled out to hear preach, who have gone to be healed. It's his job to know what's happening in Judea when Jesus comes in and out. When he comes in this very week, just a few days before, and the people are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. He knows about Jesus. He is this good prophet that the crowds love. So he puts Jesus alongside Barabbas. Understanding what's at play here, what the religious leaders are doing, thinking that he can get past this with this political play. But while this is happening, Matthew adds a wrinkle that the other gospel writers don't include. Verse 19 says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So even more so, while he's on the judgment seat, his wife sends word to him and says, don't have anything to do with Jesus. I've had dreams, I've had nightmares, I've been afflicted because of him. We don't know what the content of those dreams were, but it's enough to scare her in this moment to send word to him to say, don't have anything to do with Jesus. And while this is going on, 
The religious leaders are making political moves of their own. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the crowds are there and the religious leaders are working their way through the crowds. Now crowds can turn very quickly into a mob mentality, very fast. When I was traveling years ago and studied abroad, I was in India and one of the travel warnings we had for India uh, was when you were there, if you see a crowd form, uh, they form very quickly and a lot of people get out because they have a lot of protests and those protests are violent very quickly with mob mentality. We saw that, we've seen that here in our own country that when a crowd gets together, it just takes a little bit of stirring up and all of a sudden it can turn to violence. And that is exactly what is happening here. And the religious leadership, they know how to work a crowd. Working their way through the crowd, whispering lies, they probably, it's possible they've even stacked the deck a little bit, put people in the crowd. I said, we're, we're going to free Barabbas. Barabbas. We're going to chant for Barabbas. We don't need this Jesus. He, he, he's going to bring problems for us. Barabbas. Start the chant. Barabbas. Barabbas. They're, he's, they're building up the chant. Verse 21. Then the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So they, they've won the crowds. They've got them stirred up. Barabbas, Barabbas, they're chanting for the notorious criminal. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? So Pilate has lost this political game. He tried it, presenting two different options. They want to free Barabbas. Okay, so what do you want? What do you want me to do with Jesus? So they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? I want you to see the shock that's in Pilate there. He he says, what evil has he done? You see, the crucifixion was a Roman punishment. It was not a Jewish punishment. They had a great disdain for this punishment. They didn't like it. And it is shocking to to him that they would ask for crucifixion. That's overkill, right? That's something that's reserved for rebels who have rebelled against the Roman Empire. That is a step too far. It doesn't make sense that a beloved prophet, that they would, they would make a move on him like this. He does not deserve the cross. But it says, but they shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. All the more. Let him be crucified. It intensifies. They want him on a cross. The Sadducees, the religious leadership, the Pharisees, they have won the crowd. Pilate has lost control as, the, as it intensifies, as they want crucifixion. Pilate is shocked. Jesus is not. This is a part of the plan. This is part of the plan. Forgiveness is not free. It has to be paid for. Verse 24. So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning... He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Pilate is a politician, and he is a coward. It is better for one man to die than to have a riot that he has to answer for later. Because having riots, not being able to control your region, would get you removed. It eventually does for him, because he cannot control this region. So the coward washes his hands, which actually doesn't absolve him of guilt, but in his mind it does. 
And the people foolishly in the crowd say, let Jesus' blood be on us and our children. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Barabbas is released. He gets to go home and Jesus is scourged, which is a horrific punishment. Scourging, it's called called flagellation, uh, flogging was a brutal form of torment. I want to read what one commentator describes this. He says, A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. Hear that. Hung in bleeding shreds. Shreds, the instrument indicated by the Markan text, that would be Mark's gospel, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourging consisting of leather straps plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain. So, as an illustration of what this is, uh, the flagellum was a tool, it wasn't just a whip, it had bits of bone or lead in it, and the goal was that as you whipped the person, that it would latch into their flesh and rip out chunks of skin. And they would do this over and over again. Their backs, their legs, it was meant to absolutely fillet and mangle the flesh of the person who was being punished. He goes on to say, no maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, unlike Jewish law that kept it at 39. So we see in in the book of Acts that that they, they get a flogging like this, And the Jewish law says, nope, not more than 39. 40 might kill you, 39 is enough. The Romans did not have that. They did not have mercy. They were some of the most brutal, uh, the most brutal uh, people that would, their their torture methods were were unreal. They they, they wouldn't stop at 39. They, They would, to the point of almost killing people, it says, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from flogging. Josephus, who's a historian, he records that he himself had some of his opponents in Galilee scourged until their entrails were visible. That they they would be scourged so badly that so much flesh and muscle would be ripped out that their entrails would be exposed. The torture itself was enough to kill somebody. And then they're going to put a cross on his mangled and bloodied and ripped apart back. But not yet. Because they're going to humiliate him first. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. I've pictured this in the past. and I've, I've missed that part. The whole battalion piece. I, I've imagined. I don't know if it's because it's from the scene of the Passion of the Christ or whatever. But I, I've imagined it's just a few people. But it's not. It's a battalion of soldiers. 600 to 1,000 soldiers are going to mock him. And his bloodied and mangled body is brought before him. And they're going to make fun of his kingship. It says, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So these Roman soldiers, they also have heard of Jesus. And they see the charge. He's going to be charged as a king. Okay, let's make fun of his kingship. 
So they take a scarlet robe and they put it on his back. Now, Mark's gospel and John's gospel, they, 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 they call this a purple robe, which means either they're describing the same color, which happens in some cultures, they don't have a whole lot of differentiation between certain colors, or it's two robes. The purple one on his back, ripped off. And these, are, these, these would have been not smooth robes. These would have been rough, blending into his, his mangled flesh, being ripped off. And, and, and they're, well, they're, they're mocking him. They're mocking him as a king. And they take a, a crown of thorns, and don't think like rose thorns. These would have been uh, thorns native to that region. These are longer thorns. And they take a crown of thorns, and they force it on his head to mock him. They take a reed stick, made it to look like a king's scepter. They put it in his hand, and they bow down to him. Hail, king of the Jews. Hundreds of soldiers laughing, mocking the king of the universe. And they spit on him. And they, they take the reef stick and they hit him on the head. It is a brutal mocking, a brutal torture. But this is to fulfill Isaiah 53. It says, but Isaiah prophesied about this. He said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Peace does not come without a cost. Forgiveness is not free. And we see that so clearly, and we will pick this up on Good Friday this week as we continue as he goes up the hill. Now, one of the things that sticks out about this is how absolutely, how, how absolutely unjust this is. How absolutely unfair this is. How corrupt and how evil this is. I mean, this situation is gross. I mean, Jesus is completely innocent of all of these charges. He's only displayed kindness and goodness towards the people. And then he gets arrested by these religious leaders. And then he becomes a political pinball between two godless groups, the religious leaders and Pilate and the Romans. And then these weak, feckless cowards debate over the God who made them, over the God who thought them into existence. They debate over his life. And then they plan to murder him, to murder the ruler over all things. And Pilate, in his political maneuvering, he presents two different options. You can have Barabbas or Jesus. You can have Jesus, the prophet whom all the crowds love. I mean, think, guys, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now. Think of all of the beautiful displays of our Savior, of how good He is, of how righteous He is, of how kind He is. You can have this Jesus, or you can have Barabbas. You can have this notorious criminal, this murderer. And the religious leadership, the ones who are supposed to uphold justice and mercy and righteousness, they start a chant to free Barabbas. And they take Barabbas. When you, when you look at all of it, it's not fair. It's not fair that Barabbas avoids the cross that was meant for him, and Jesus takes his place. And when you come to that conclusion, and when you fully absorb that as the reality of this situation, it is then that you can begin to appreciate that Jesus died in our place.
It is then that you can begin to appreciate and fully understand that the reality is, is that we have sinned against a holy and perfect God. That, that our sin over and over is a violation of His goodwill for us. That we rebel against the God of the universe. That we are insurrectionists with our lives. That we hurt other people over and over and over and over again. That we are, we are prisoners in a cell awaiting our sentencing, our just sentencing against, for sinning against the God of the universe. And then we are brought up out of the cell. And there is an exchange that happens. For those who trust in Jesus, we point to him. And we avoid the cross, and he goes to the cross for us. That is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Theologians like to use big words. All that means is that there is a penalty for sin. That's the penal part. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. That we deserve death because of our sin. But God in his rich mercy provides for us a suffering substitute. That Jesus takes our place. My buddy from Louisville has lost the thread on the gospel. There is no reality where forgiveness does not cause. That there's no... There's no Reality, where our sin and rebellion does not cost. And, and here's the deal. We may not play out that same thought exercise. We, we may not come to that same intellectual conclusion. But the reality is, is that for many of us, practically, we live that way. Practically, our lives show that we believe that. Because over and over again, we just don't think our sin costs. We don't think our sin's that big of a deal. We dismiss it. We'd rather live our lives on our terms and we'll justify it and we won't think it's that big of a deal. So much of Southern Christianity is just claiming to be a Christian and living your life on your terms. And it's this, this thought process that because God is good and because God is loving, that it'll all just work out in the end. That His forgiveness doesn't real, have this real cost and that we can live our lives on our terms. And that is an eternally fatal belief. No, our forgiveness costs. Rebellion costs. Paul in Colossians says, in Colossians 2, he says, And you who are dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's the sinful nature of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's through faith. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of our sins, by canceling the record of debt. The record of debt. We have an endless record of sins that, stand, that stands against us with its legal demands. The legal demands is death. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. That is the heart of the gospel. That in our sin, that in our rebellion, that we have rebelled against God's good design, that we are waiting in the cells, in the, in the prison cells of our sin and death, awaiting to be sentenced. And God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us there. That he steps in. That he steps down from heaven. That he comes to live the perfect life that we could not live. And that he comes before us and we're brought out of the cell. And all we have to do is say, I believe in you, Jesus. My life belongs to you. I trust you. And he says, good. Take my perfect record and I'll take your place. And he goes to the cross for us. 
It is not fair. But God in His rich kindness redeems sinners. And man, it has a cost. And I want us to sit in that this morning. If you are, as a, if you are a Christian this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus as your only hope, I want you to sit in this painful, beautiful reality. I don't want us to stare, to, to, to stare away from the cross and the brutality of it. it. It teaches us grace. When we look at the cross, when we think about what they did to Jesus, it reminds us. That we could never earn that. We could never do what Jesus did. And praise God that we could not. That we don't have to earn his favor. That no amount of good works could make this right. That we look to the cross and we say, praise God. It teaches us repentance. It motivates us to repentance. That there are moments when we become so tempted. When the lusts of our flesh, when our sinful, selfish desires arise and present to us the option of sin, we get to in that moment, remember, no, no, we get to literally just picture the cross and say, no, 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 my life was bought with a price. It was too costly. And I'm not going to run to sin. I want Jesus. It leads us to worship. Y'all, it's all over the songs that we sing. That we respond and we sing about the blood of our Savior, about what Jesus has done for us. It motivates us and it inspires us to love God, that He's so loving towards us that He came to die on a cross for us. If you're a Christian, I want you to sit in that reality this morning and I want you to see Jesus as beautiful in worship. If you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your only hope, my hope this morning is that you would see that God loves you so much that he did not leave you in sin and brokenness. We all have sin. All of us have our junk. We've all rebelled against God. And this morning, he has you here, and he wants you to see, I love you. Can't you see that 2,000 years ago, I came for you, I died for you, I bled for you so that you might believe? My hope this morning is that you would see that his arms are open and he wants you and that you would believe. That you stop running in sin. That you stop trying to earn uh, your, your, your salvation by your own good works, by your own merit. My hope is that you would trust only in the finished work of Christ. He wants you. My hope is that you believe. Because forgiveness is not free. But he wants to give it to you freely. The band's going to come up. And I want us to sit in these truths as we prepare to respond. If you are not a Christian, Please do not delay. Don't walk away from this. Don't walk away from conviction. My hope is that you would trust in Christ. That right now, as we sing songs, you would take a moment in your seat and you would pray. Pray for God to reveal himself. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and give your life and trust in him. If you are a Christian, I want you to take a few moments and just be reminded of how good your Savior is. About how beautiful His blood is. About how much our sin costs. And it doesn't lead us to shame. It doesn't lead us to guilt. It leads us to praise. Because we get to look at our sin and then we immediately get to look to our Savior. Let me pray. Lord, your kindness and your mercy and your goodness 
are so profound and so beautiful. God, I pray that you would help us in this moment see it clearly. Don't let us run away from it. Don't let us hide from it. God, I pray you go to work in our hearts right now. If there's anyone here who's not trusted in you, God, I pray that you would become so beautiful, so good, that you would win their hearts and they would believe. God, I pray for those of us that are Christians. Lord, we love you. Help us see the brutality of the cross as beautiful. And may it lead us to worship and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.